Welcome to the Efficient Spend Podcast, where we help marketers turn media spend into revenue. My guest today is Evan Lee. Evan, thank you for being here today. I'm excited, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Excited for this one. Yeah, I'm excited to chat. Um, I know that you're spending a lot of time at, at Motion, and I would love if you could just take folks through kind of your background as it relates to working in uh, media and uh, media spend. For sure. Well, I'm, I'm happy I'm here to talk to, to uh, talk to all the party people who have tuned in. Everybody, my name is Evan Lee. I'm the head of creative strategy at Motion. It's just a fancy way of saying that I get to talk with the best brands and agencies every single day about how they run their creative strategy. Uh, prior to being at Motion, I was a full-time media buyer or creative strategist, as I didn't realize at the time, but realize now. So I had a chance working at an agency to basically tackle all paid social channels, add Google to the mix for, for large and small brands alike. Um, and there, what I had to do is, of course, just like deal with the bells and whistles of every social media platform, but also work with our clients' creative teams and advise them on what type of creatives that we should be looking to build as time goes on. And as we experience iOS 14, as everyone knows, takes away a little bit of the bells and whistles we can pull. So all of that really prepared me and propelled me into a place where like, I'm truly the buyer. I was the buyer of who Motion exactly serves. So it became a match made in heaven, in all honesty. Really good product with a problem that I know so well. And I'm just like super jazzed and excited at all times to talk about creative strategy and why creative is the new targeting and why teams ultimately need to care about it. So that's really what brought me to Motion um, and everything lining up. Yeah, that's awesome. And I've definitely seen your your content a lot um, and you're building awareness of, of motion. Um, I also believe that creative is one of the most important levers, if not the most important lever in media mix optimization, especially as a lot of the other campaign management levers become automated. Um, targeting becomes automated, bidding becomes automated. Facebook, TikTok are all coming up with these automated campaign strategies. And so it really is about the creative, but also understanding how to test the creative and identify what top performing creative is. Because sometimes the auction will actually deliver towards the creative that might get a lot of initial engagement, but isn't actually performant. Um, to that end, I wonder, like, what pain points do you think motion is solving sort of at a high level? Yeah. So I can definitely, I do want to add some thoughts to what you had described there. Cause that's a, a super interesting point. But when we talk about, when we talk about motion and the problem that we solve, Paul, you hit it nail on the head. Creatives become the most important lever for success in all paid social advertising. But what that also means is that there's now two teams who are equally as important that are involved. So that means on one hand, we have our media buying teams who are super data heavy and, and analytics heavy. Whereas on the other end, we have our creative teams and our creative teams are exactly that, creative and conceptual. They need to be side by side in lockstep, but ultimately the way their brains are wired, when we think of art and science, left brain, right brain, there's a natural divide in between these two groups. So when we think about motion, we're a creative analytics and reporting platform that ultimately helps bridge the gap between those two teams. So think of it like um, creative used to be analyzed in spreadsheets and imagine a creative person's brain when they look at a spreadsheet. Motion really just helps make it easy for the creative person to see what's going on so they can actually also help make some decisions and drive more money for businesses overall. So that's where, that's where motion ultimately comes to play in this world. That's creative first. 
But the point that I uh, I wanted to add to what you were mentioning of like the media buyer and hey, how is this role starting to evolve? So at Motion, for anyone who does check us out, like we evangelize creative strategy like No Tomorrow because we truly believe, and I do too, that it is the future. But the one thing is, is like in our current like permutation of what media buying is, there's such a crucial role of a media buyer. Like Paul, you had given the example of the auction distributing budget to ads or creatives that might not actually be the best. The really interesting thing is, is like it's good to know that. And it's good to pass that information back to the creative team or anyone else involved. And what I mean by that is like, what we might notice is, is sure the creative isn't resonating, but we might notice a certain demographic that we had no idea that we were going to deliver to. Facebook is now prioritizing. If we know Facebook's prioritizing to that specific demo, what we might actually say is like, we should lean in. It's not that we just kill the creative entirely. It's like, hey, you know what? 45 to 65 is, is where Facebook wants to spend our money. What should the creative alignment, so everything from persona work to creative backlog prioritization to the ultimate output, should be made potentially for that demographic to see what lands. So a creative person isn't going to be able to come with that. Someone in between who's project managing isn't really going to be able to do that either. Either. So the media buyer still has a crucial role, I'd say, in today's world. It's just going to evolve over time. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. The fact that... Um, when you're using a you know automated system um, with very advanced bidding like Facebook, what they're doing is they're all about signal, and there are certain signals that are going to uh, really over index to where you're delivering in the auction, and so there's circumstances where a certain concept or ad that has a certain persona ends up getting a, you know, a favorable spot in, in the auction, but the conversion rate to that metric you care about is not there. And then it becomes dissecting that and thinking, well, is it that the persona is right, but then the messaging is off? Is it that this is something that there's scale on in Facebook but our onboarding experience and landing page does not actually align to what the opportunity is. And then we have to optimize that a little bit further. Most definitely. Most definitely. It's, it's such an interesting time too, because um, I was talking to someone recently about this on an event that I hosted, but I've always been a huge fan of like, hey, within paid social, you just can get learnings so quickly and then apply those learnings to other places. So in the in the vein of, persona work like you're talking about like we might think there's a specific persona that'll work really well on paid social but we might learn that it's not so um i was talking to kevin from attention and his terminology that he used was perfect to me so he mentioned use facebook or use paid social in general as a focus group it's the cheapest way and the quickest way that you can get stuff out there without having to call each of your individual customers, learn a ton of information. It's like, let's put it out into the world. We've done the research that we need to, to see if this is going to resonate. And ultimately the algorithm will let us know if that's true or not. If it's true, great. It's stuff that we can start to scale across, not just like Facebook as a platform, but our, but our own channels, our organic socials, our, our emails, all that kind of stuff. And if it's false, it's good to know that quickly. So it's like, let's draw the line in the sand. Maybe we, maybe we uh, figure out what different angles, hooks, all that kind of stuff might look like. 
For sure. Yeah, that is there. That is very much my creative testing philosophy. Um, and, and I've been part of, you know, I, I'm leveraging that right now. So um, at my full-time role itself, I manage creative strategy across our paid media mix and work with several production partners, some of which are, uh, you know, TV production, longer timelines, things like that, expensive. Um, and there's always going to be that aspect of uh, creative production. And so my strategy when launching a new product or, you know, doing something like that is I think to myself, what's the low hanging fruit in terms of, of testing and a place like Facebook is great for that because what you can do is you can come up with these very simple templates, more billboard style ads and test very big messages against each other, test very, uh, you know, differentiated personas against each other. And then you realize, okay, like this message really resonates or this, um, this theme really resonates. And then that can inform the more expensive TV production strategy. I love it. I love it. One of the things like, I think, I think TV is so underutilized, but maybe something we talk about later. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, I want to get back to, to motion a little bit. So just to give folks some, some context, um, I know that you have a pretty heavy brand roster. Um, can you maybe speak to some of the brands that are currently on on motion that maybe you communicate with uh, um, on a regular basis? Yeah, so a lot of like the DTC darlings that we talk about, um, we're lucky that we get to partner up with them. So when you think of like the Vioris of the world, the Caraways, Ridge Wallets, Jones Road Beauty, uh, Kosis Beauty, those are a bunch that we have there. Um, we also partner with like a bunch of agencies too to access like some of the brands that they work with. So any brands who are working with agencies, we don't want to alienate you as well. We can also help out. So anyone who partners with like the, the Vayner Commerces, Tenuities, W Promotes, we also help on that front. And we like to think about creative strategy holistically, of course, but meet people where they are. So what that means is like one of the brands that I mentioned might not have as robust of a creative team as that you would want to run like uh, grade A, pie in the sky, creative strategy. But that's okay. Like, like there's a lot of small bets that you can make with motion that motion helps out with. Um, but yeah, so those are some of the brands that we work with. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I would think that motion would be really um, useful specifically for agencies. The the thing that I kind of love in in the couple of conversations we've had and demos we've had with the with the product is just how visually engaging it is, um, and that's super important. Specifically, you mentioned the different categories of users because data scientists and analysts are using a different type of their brain compared to creatives. And so you want to have that really visual report that, that you can share with someone and they can look at it and they just get it. 100%. And creative teams often turn into pencil pushers, right? So what that means is like you have no context as a creative team member, you get a brief and you're like, all right, let me try my best. But what motion allows you to do is that it puts you in a space where you can actually see the information yourself, only the metrics that you care about, and then make decisions accordingly, which is quite powerful for those teams. And I often think of it as like creative is the most important lever for success that's going to drive money. But the creative team doesn't really have a seat at the table to make really strategic decisions most of the time. 
So what we aspire to do is like, we want to give the creative team and creative leadership a voice. Can you put a KPI beside your work now instead of just like an output number? Can we put like numbers and revenue beside your work instead of just like how frequently are you pushing stuff out? There's a lot that we want to be able to help creative teams with along the way. And then the only other piece I'll tack on here is like to jump into the data scientists or the media buyer space where you're a little bit more analytical is reporting itself is, I think everyone can agree, is annoying at the end of the day. Like you're pulling in information. It takes a really long time. And most of the time, you're just like sifting through data. But with Motion, what we hope to do in a really visual way is make the data aggregation easy. We just want you to focus on decision making. Now that you see the data, what can you ultimately do next? And if we can get all of your brain power there, as well as the creative team speaking your language, that's where magic can happen. And that's where the money starts to pump in the overall business. So, so that's uh, the ethos behind some of the work that we do. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, um, you know, I, I've been working in media mix optimization and, and, and media buying for, for close to a decade now and have developed... I don't know, by this point, hundreds of, of different reports, you know, using different tools and, and, and softwares. One of the biggest things is, is it actionable as, and is it going to be used by different teams? Are different teams actually going to play around with this thing, operationalize it into their, into their weekly reporting and, and their decision making? Because you can make a very beautiful report, but if it's not something that can be engaging and, and someone's actually taking action on um, and also including creatives too. I mean, uh, that's, I, I think that's like a, a really large pain point, um, because designers are, designers sh should start to learn about these things like thumb stop rate, um, and be able to then make iterations based off of that. Do you have any examples or stories of folks that have like onboard in motion and then started to make some of these changes based on the data? 100%. But I'll give you a quick shout out really quickly, just because like you had glazed over, hey, I've, I've been doing these building reports, jump, jumping into the data uh, quite a bit over your career. Um, I've, I've seen your stuff. You've talked to me about it quite in-depthly. Everyone listening in, Paul knows his stuff on that one. So he's good to go. <laughs> valid, valid in my books. Uh, but jumping back to your question, seeing people who have onboarded and the stories that have come with that, so I think like I can share two specific examples, one that's a little bit more like touchy feely feels good for the soul and another that's a little bit more tangible. So when we're talking about like touchy feely and good for the soul, we've had instances where we've actually onboarded clients in their creative teams and one of their creative team members prior to onboarding motion, like felt a little bit lost. It's like, what am I going to do? Am I just going to be a graphic designer? Am I going to be a senior graphic designer? Like, what does my career look like and how do I get excited about this ultimately? And at Motion, not only do we have our platform, we talk a lot about the education around creative strategy. And then this person from the brand we were working with, honestly, just sent me an email. It's like, Evan, I feel like I have new purpose. Like I see what my career trajectory can look like, the types of tasks that I'd be responsible for and stuff that like gets me excited to wake up, get out of bed and like do the job at the end of the day. So when we talk about just like I know it's not numbers based here, more just in the feeling side, but when we think about that mind switch that happens and the motivation that the team member is going to have, so cool, so empowering. So that's like one example um, that I often think of. Another one that I think of is, I don't always name the brands because I don't know how much information I'm allowed to, but it's a footwear brand. 
So a footwear brand that we had onboarded had one person who was like playing the head of growth and director of growth role. So being in the ad accounts, hoping to do like great work and determine what to do next. And the creative team was a little bit off to the side, ultimately wanted more integration to come from that. So what that started to mean is in their weekly meetings, instead of just talking about like big swings all the time, very theoretically, they really started being able to break it down. And when they talked about videos, it turned modular. It's like, okay, what do we need for the very first frame? What does the first three second hook like? What does the post three second hook like? What does the CTA look like? And what's the creative to landing page experience start to dive into? So breaking it down into that modular approach really allowed the creative team to get creative within buckets now. So instead of just this big, scary topic of let's make a three minute video, super branded and get it out there. It's like, ooh. You're telling me before someone even needs to stop their scroll, they need to be enticed to continue their scroll. Okay, let's use this as the thumbnail. Oh, before they go anywhere else, we need to hook them in that first three seconds. Amazing. Let's start to break it down here. And the best part is, is not only did their framework change for how they scripted and started to make specific things, it's that they were able to measure all of those specific touch points in a modular video on an ongoing basis. So they could start to make changes in future iterations based off the data they were getting back. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent example. Um, you know, it, it makes me think of uh, best practices for different ad types and how that evolves over time. Um, a couple years ago, I would be very bullish on saying, hey, listen, <clears throat> you really need to get your brand in the first couple seconds of an ad, if it's a, if it's a skippable ad, you really want to get that upfront um, and immediate. What I am learning with uh, platforms like TikTok, though, is that you actually want to be a little bit more native, and you might not need to get the brand in there at first if you create enough curiosity to get a good thumb stop to listen to the full story. And I think about that you know, as we evolve in our careers over time, right now, kind of the emerging things are artificial intelligence, um, you know, AI-generated ads, things on. Um, and then, like, in terms of platforms, we're really not on, uh, like, VR ha has not, for the most part, uh, been, like, mass market yet. But that's where we're heading, right? Um, in 10 years and 20 years, we're not going to be interacting on the same devices that we're interacting on now. And so some of these metrics that the ad channels provide, like thumb stop, through play, things like that, those can be those signals to understand, are you actually creating content contextual to that channel as performing? Mm, very good point. No, no, no. Super good point. Super good point. Yeah. Um, and I just think like with, with, with TikTok specifically, um, because what I've started to do and lean into a little bit more is these very like skit based kind of style ads um, that start with a pain point and are, can be like different, uh, can be symbolic to what our customers are facing. They don't have to necessarily call out the specific, you know, brand. Um, but they can reach that audience. Um, you mentioned kind of modular components of, of ads, which I, I love. And that's how I think about creative testing and iteration as well. You find a winning concept and then you say, 
do we want to improve the hook? Do we want to improve the body? Do we want to improve the, the call to action? Maybe let's go into some of that stuff in a little bit more detail. So um, starting with hooks, because I think hooks are the most important. Um, that is where you're reaching the higher percent, the highest percentage of your audience. If you look at, um, you know, video watch time, there's always going to be that, like that cliff and then that huge drop off in the, in the first couple of seconds. Um, are there any tactics or, uh, tips that, that you have, or that you've experienced for really building a, a strong hook into, into ads? Yeah, this is. This is such a contextual question to like specific brands and ad accounts. So I'll take a I'll take a step back first and then drill into the uh, the experience of like what that ultimately looks like in a hook. So from a contextual perspective, everybody, when we think of creative strategy, essentially we think about it as a flywheel. If you follow specific steps, you're able to output the best creative possible. And where the first step in the flywheel begins is with research. And what research is saying is it's saying that like, hey, go find out about your customer and build personas around them. So that starts to mean, okay, let me go look at all of my Google reviews, Amazon reviews, website reviews, all that good stuff. Could also mean just look at like customer data on the back end, as well as just checking out comments on your, on your social platforms, anything along those lines. After you've built those personas out, you continue through the flywheel to actually prioritize, well, here are the personas. What angles should we actually go after these personas with during an ideation and prioritization phase? At this step, which is the second step, is when you're starting to think of what are the things that will resonate best with the persona. Now, what that means is like a tactical example is like you might have an audience who you want to have a lot of purchasing power and is a little bit older, right? So above 50, above 65 plus in that world. What that means for your hook is that it might be a lot slower and it might be a lot easier to understand in all honesty at that point, right? But if you're going after a younger demographic where it's a very impulse purchase, you might just have it be super quick and cut, 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 cut along the way. So that's the context I'll provide. That's why I can't really say it's, it's uh, what should you do immediately. But in terms of things that I've seen work really well, let's call it, uh, I can share some examples after the call too. There's a bunch of decks that we have put together. But before and afters for beauty brands will always work really, really well. UGC mashups within the first three seconds also work quite well, especially for e-commerce. And then anything talking about five-star reviews typically works well. I don't think I have anything earth shattering here by any chance, uh, any sense. But it, but it starts to really come down to that persona. And then once you know the value prop that you're going to serve the persona, that's where you can get creative and start to fit in mashups, before and afters, five-star reviews, all that kind of stuff. Does that help? I feel like I went on a little tangent there. No, that, that, that's super helpful. Um, and yeah, I was uh, learning about um, the creative strategy flywheel as, as you kind of spoke to. Um, I think you know, systems for creative production are super important and staying regimented to that. And to be honest with you, none of this stuff really is earth shattering, right? Like there, there is this sense that um, we know what will work. The before after stuff will always work using social proof um, will always work. UGC testimonial style ads will always work. What it's more about is identifying which one of those is going to result in the in the largest impact and resonate with your your audience. When you talk about kind of like 
persona development. That's something too, right? Um, you might build out your personas and realize that, okay, um, the majority of them are within the sector. And so we should focus there. But I think when you're operating at scale, then it becomes more about finding those incremental pockets of audiences that you weren't aware of in the past. So it's probably, you know, keeping things simple when you're first starting and scaling uh, for businesses that, you know, are spending 10K a month, 50K a month uh, on their entire media mix. My recommendation would be not to over segment, to go with one, you know, two to three different personas, um, maybe like three to five concepts and just create iterations of, of that. Um, and then as you scale out, you build out more diversification into your uh, production strategy. For sure. For sure. And the, for smaller brands too, like, I think it also just comes, it's not so much driven by this, but it's also like, how do you test creative at that point, like in the ad account? So I agree leaning into a like high priority two personas and then prioritizing the creative for each of them. So it's just all high priority stuff is great. But then it's like, how do you launch it in the ad account? Do you separate it into its own campaign? Do you put it into its own ad sets within its own, uh, within a larger campaign that contains evergreen and testing? There's, there's different techniques that you can apply to hopefully get the most out of your spend. And for anyone with larger budgets, what I'd also say there is... Uh, want to be careful of, of backing yourself into a corner um, where the algorithm just like pushes you away and says, you're going to live here now because all you've given me is this type of creative. So there really is an importance to the big swings that come into play. You get one. So the short version of that is like, you can iterate yourself into a corner. I love iteration. Don't get me wrong, but those big swings need to come into a place. So you're getting that diversity and access to new audiences who you might not have before. For sure. Um, yeah, absolutely agree with you. I, uh, my overarching philosophy generally is that, you know, in terms of your like net new creative production, some percentage should be completely big swing concepts and a, a certain percentage should be iterations. And that mix will vary depending on how conservative you, you want to be. Right. So like, I think a, a good, you know, 80-20 is like 80% iteration. And so you're still developing new things, but you're being conservative, 20% completely new concepts. And I think that that 80-20 kind of philosophy of, of testing iteration versus like net new also applies to just your overall media mix, meaning that... Um, you always want to be testing new channels, but you don't want 80% of your budget going towards new channels. So when I think about channel testing, I'm like, okay, we have this list of, you know, we're running within eight different channels right now. We want to bring one or two more on and what's the budget level for that. And then you, you, you just make room for it essentially. Um, but that's how you grow too. And that's how you also defend against, uh, crazy changes. Um, you know, Facebook makes a new change to their ad account and then, and then you're screwed. So, um, it's that, it's that concept of kind of like diversification for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of my, um, principles too. So for efficient spend, um, I haven't released this yet, but I'm starting to work on a number of 
principles, spend principles around your media mix. And one of those is diversification, which I just think is like a core element and there's, there's ways to do it the right way. I almost think of it, uh, it's kind of very similar to like managing a, a stock portfolio. And I'm, I'm big on the fire movement um, and, you know, these kind of like index funds where you can buy the, the stock market. And the idea being is that like, if you look at the top 500 companies 50 years ago, um, how many of them exist today? And basically every company in the history of time eventually goes to zero. So um, you need to build that diversification into your kind of like stock portfolio if you're investing. And similarly with, with your media mix and creative testing, um, Facebook, TikTok are the top channels right now. Where was TikTok a decade ago, right? Um, Facebook is now something where, you know, if, if I look at year over year cost per click, it's gotten a lot more expensive um, over time. So you need to build that diversification. 100%. CPMs are up. Everything we kind of see, right? Um, but hold on, Paul. Did we just? Did you just drop some breaking news on folks? Is that what happened? Is that what <laughs> happened casually? News. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, and, uh, I, but I, I think that the, these things are important. You know, like they're these... With our job, um, we work in this very fast changing industry, um, new information all the time, new product, new features, new channels. And so principles uh, to stick to are super important. Systems are super important, like the creative strategy flywheel. And honestly, they can make you, you know, sleep easier at night. Um, you mentioned the creative, uh, the strat creative strategy flywheel. And I know that you did that um, YouTube video with, with Kevin, that type of thing. If you can learn how to do that and just kind of, um, you know, go hands off and, and start developing, you don't really have to stress about what new features or, you know, what's happening in the industry. You can kind of just, um, you know, stick to your guns to a certain extent. Exactly. Like it can be overwhelming. Like anything can be overwhelming. Like when you talk about a stock portfolio, making sure that you've matched your risk level and how do you want to diversify your assets versus anything else. It's like when you don't know where to start, you're kind of like, holy crap, like what is life? Where do I, where do I kick off here? But as soon as there's a little bit of a framework and then you're able to develop your underarching uh, like principles of how you apply the framework, it gets easier. So like when we talk creative strategy flywheel, that's what we hope to empower people with along the way, similar to what you described with uh, the breaking news and what you're going to produce, as well as when we talk about a stock portfolio. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, let's go back to the flywheel because I know we were talking about that a bit. So you talked through research, ideation. Do you want to talk through some of the other components of the creative strategy flywheel? Uh, sure, sure. So everybody, let me just give you the, the high level here. I think the last time I counted, there's around eight steps, but to give you the high level first, then we can dive in. So when we talk about the eight, I'd already mentioned, we kick off with research and building those personas out. The next step we dive into is ideation. And really what that is, is like ideating what um, specific angles or value props to lean into the personas with. Once we have all of that, we move to briefing because it's equally as important to translate this information to the folks who are involved in building. After you brief, you need to create, which is its whole own job on its own. After creation, you then move to the fifth step of um, evaluation. 
an evaluation just means, is this creative in line with what I actually wanted to produce? Once you evaluate, you then move to media buyer stage of launching it into the account. And then finally, so I guess I'm seven here, uh, that's when you're going to the creative analysis side. So you're looking at how did everything perform? So you can then move forward and say, okay, let's go back to the persona. Did it start to hit? So those are the seven steps, let's call them in the flywheel there. Uh, and then basically with this flywheel, uh, and I can dive into each of the buckets in a second here, what I, to throw more terminology out here, the question that I always get is like, Evan, the flywheel looks great. Like how often am I going through this thing? And that's where a lot of people start to get a little bit frozen and confused. And the terminology that I apply here is similar to like an agile developer style of approach. And it's a sprint. So we actually call them creative sprint cycles when we're advising our clients on what they should approach this with. So that means those seven steps that I had mentioned, depending on how much money you're spending in your ad accounts, depending on your creative team and creative resourcing capability, it might vary. You might be spending a million dollars a month, which then breaks down to larger budgets on a weekly basis. So you're like, we can do this every week. We're good to go. But if you have a smaller budget, you might push that out. It's like, let's go through this flywheel every 21 days, every 30 days, something along those lines. So it starts to get more palatable. So that's the overarching theme of like creative sprints that actually contain the flywheel that you can go through those steps. Sure. Thank you for that. Um, and I think the, the reason it's a, it is a, is a flywheel is those first components of research and ideation when you're starting that for the first time, you're using, like you said, you could be using um, data on your customer re reviews, what you know about your customers, demographic data, competitor data, and maybe some of the creative performance. And then once you go through that production process you, and you come back around, um, more of that uh, ideation research phase is based on the actual performance of, of the assets. Um, so that, that's really interesting. Another one that I, I think is super important in the in the research phase, um, and I, I try to do a good job of this, is, is competitor analysis. Um, it, it's a big one. And, and the, the reason why I think it's so important, um, if you are, if you're, if you're a marketer, just like visit your website. And if you're running a retargeting campaign, even, even if you're not, it doesn't matter. Watch what happens on your own Facebook and Instagram feeds, on your own TikTok feeds. Um, so I work, I work in uh, for a credit building brand, um, and I'll notice that when I start, you know, playing around with my website a little bit more, if I'm not in an exclusion bucket, or if I happen to visit a competitor's website, the amount of competitor ads that I start getting um, is crazy, right? And it's like this for every single category. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was in the market. Um, I, I just bought a pair of Allbirds. Um, I had an older pair, the, the Mizzles, which were like the, the wool shoes. And now I got their kind of like lighter weight pair for, for my trip to Poland. Um, and so I'm, you know, visiting Allbirds and of course I'm getting thousands of retargeting ads from, from Allbirds. But the other thing that I'm getting on Instagram is all of these other, you know, kind of like tech bro shoe companies, um, the, 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 the shoes without the, the soles, right. Um, you know, different type of sandal companies, things like that. Um, and the reason for that is all of those signals are going into 
Facebook, um, and it's and they're using that to to optimize. So not only is your brand using it to optimize, your competitors are using that to optimize. Um, so don't get that twisted and like make sure that you understand. Hey, if you're showing someone an, an ad, it's likely probably you know. 99% likely that they're going to see a competitor ad at some point. 100%, 100%. And like when we're talking about competitor analysis, like it's so robust. It could be as simple as like, huh, what ads are they running so I can get some inspiration? All the way down to like digging into their website, understanding their personas and all that good stuff. One of the cool things that I've talked to one of my good friends, Patrick from, from well, he's not there anywhere. He's in Dubai now, but he's a mad scientist when it comes to this. And he was one of the first people that I spoke to when it came to TikTok advertising. And what he had mentioned is like, hey, go look at your competitor's feed on TikTok. Just understand what's going on on their page and look for anything that has an absorbent amount of views. That one is what they've used as a spark ad to make it go live and know they're running as an ad that's probably still consistently on if it has way more views than anything else. So when you're doing this competitor analysis that Paul's mentioning here, there's a lot of ways you can start to dissect into what's actually working as well as just like general inspiration on top of things too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the Facebook ad library is another great resource for that. Um, but the, the trick of looking at views, uh, um, I, I've ran some Spark ads in the past. And so you can, if you, if you look at certain uh, channels, you'll see which ads have gotten uh, a, a tremendous amount of, of views as a, as a result. <clears throat> um, the other thing I would say there in terms of competitive analysis and, and kind of positioning, I think folks sometimes get into the trap of, well, we need to compare ourselves to this competitor. And so, you know, they do this really well. So how can we kind of defend against that? And to me, I look at any asset as real estate that you can control and you, you can decide how to frame the comparison. And so what you should do is emphasize the things that you are that much better at. You don't have to mention the things that you might be decent at, right? So if you're doing like, you know, you, uh, I think B2B is a, a great example of this like competitor comparison charts, right? And they'll mostly on landing pages, they'll have a, a whole list of, of features. Um, if your competitor does something really well that you don't, that you don't do, just don't include it on the list. Right. I, and I don't know. I mean, um, I, maybe that's not transparent, but uh, at the end of the day, we are trying to like sell here and, and convert customers. And so um, another way of saying it is like, just emphasize the things that you're the best at. The reason we have battle cards is to ultimately showcase where we're better at, right? So it's just like, I'm aligned. I'm aligned. Even if uh, for those who struggle with the transparency part, throw it in, just throw it in at the bottom. Just have all the things you're great at the top. So to tell the story that way. Sure. Um, I know we're, we're kind of getting close to, to wrapping up on, on time here. I wanted to go through kind of a rapid fire round of some, some fun questions. But before I do that, I think the... The last thing I wanted to to dive into, and maybe uh, you know, we we go a few minutes over with this because this could be a, a large topic. <clears throat> um, it's something that larger brands struggle with more than small brands, which is creative fatigue. And I wonder. I know that Motion has a lot of reporting capabilities to help 
combat creative fatigue. If you could just speak to that a little bit at a high level, I think that'd be helpful. For sure. Creative fatigue is an interesting one because ultimately we care if we make sales. Like I think I acknowledge that everyone in performance marketing will acknowledge that. But I also believe that it starts to come down to the, to the metrics that you're looking at to make those decisions. So for example, one of the ways outside of just motion that like I've always, I've always thought about creative fatigue is, is a two-step process. The first thing that we're doing is we're scanning through the environment to understand our positioning in the environment. And then once we understand that, we move to the second step, which is then related to your own specific ad. So let's start with number one being the environment first. So if I'm like an e-com brand or whatever it might be, right? Something in the metrics that I might compare is my bottom line metric. So CPA, ROAS, CPO, whatever it might be. And then compare that to my CPMs. I'm looking for the relationship at that point. What I want to see is like, hey, if my return on ad spend is low and every single time it's low, the CPM is high. I might not actually have an ad fatigue problem. Like it's just like expensive in the market right now. People are pushing it or I might need to spend more money along those lines. But if I see that my return on ad spend is low and the CPM is low, I know something else is going on here. And then it's worth jumping into that second step of what's going on with my ads. Once I move to that second step of trying to figure out like what's going on in my ads, that's where I might start to compare different metrics. I think intuitively, we all want to look at that bottom line of ROAS, CPL, CPA, all that kind of stuff. But something that I've grown accustomed to, to comparing is actually looking at my like um, outbound CTR. So specifically, who's going to the dedicated pages that I want them to. And then comparing that to my conversion rates. Because what I'm looking for is the volume of people who have clicked who have, who's actually bought. Because what we know is, and at Motion, I think a lot of people, We'll notice this too, is that CTRs are pretty consistent over time. Like they won't drop off of a cliff. Like people typically click, but where they'll really start to drop off is on the purchase side of things. So what I'm looking for is when I bring it to the ad, um, the obvious would be my CTRs fall like through the floor and it's like, oh shit, I got to fix this. But more likely what I'm going to see is a consistent like CTR across the board, but my conversion rate starts to die. And if I see my conversion rate starting to die, I know that my ad isn't really resonating with this colder audience anymore. I may be driving people, but the value prop is probably all off and I might just be clickbaity to this particular group. So by breaking down those metrics, it starts to allow me to understand what's going on in the environment and what changes am I looking for, then bringing it to the ad of like, where should I be actually making a change? And to bring it back to Paul's initial question of how motion comes into play is we have a bunch of visualizations and charts to make this really easy to see within seconds essentially. So that's how I, that's how I've always thought of creative fatigue. And like within motion, we just make it easier to start to identify that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a great breakdown. I think there are certain metrics that you can look at that are more dependent on the ad itself and, um, less on the website and onboarding experience. There's other metrics that are hybrid, um, and when you look at things like CPA and the more downstream metrics, the reality is that those things are impacted by not just your ad, but a, a lot of a, a lot of other factors, lifecycle, product changes, pricing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, things like CPM are more an indication of the the auction environment. And how that ad is as is being received, things like click through rate, right? So, um, and it's very much an art and science. And as you grow in your career, you start to understand these like little inter inter 
dependencies for sure. Art and science is everywhere. We talk about it in the individual media buyer's brain. We talk about it as creative teams relate to media buyers. So funny. So funny how that works. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, well, uh, so just some some rapid fire questions. Um, I know that you're not as in the weeds media buying these days, but I wonder, you know, when you talk to different uh, clients of, of motion, um, what are some emerging and, and new channels that a lot of folks are, are getting excited about that, that you're seeing, or even that, you know, you're getting excited about? <laughs> uh, really good one. It just depends on the size of brands as well. Like I've seen a lot of people be successful on TikTok and a lot of people not be successful on TikTok. So for a lot of people, TikTok's still an emerging channel that they're getting excited about or still trying to figure out how they start to crack it. Um, beyond that, I, I think like, you, you touched upon it earlier, like TV being such an important piece, especially when you're spending a ton of money. So I'd say from like an emerging standpoint, that framing that I'd mentioned earlier is something that I'm, I'm pretty bullish on. So it's just like, hey, use these paid social platforms as your, your focus group to start to get these learnings like you apply to, and then start to take this over to the larger production shoots that apply to the, uh, if, if it goes on YouTube, some people do that, um, but also on the TV side. So Potentially there, not the best answer, but something like that. No, it, it, it's a good answer. Um, you know, I think about the law of diminishing returns. And when you're first scaling, you're going to go towards uh, where you should go is the most high intent places where you're going to get a fishing cack. Um, as you build your your brand and you have a, a better LTV and better unit economics, you can increase your CAC threshold. And that's where you can go to some of these more expensive channels like TV. Um, it's important to note with TV, a lot of times you can, you can, they do offer the ability to measure CPAs in, in different types of TV advertising. There's different lift models and stuff like that. Um, they're going to look more expensive than your paid search than, than your, than your Facebook, but there is, uh, the element of kind of your, your brand building there and brand legitimacy um, with a high production TV ad um, that can't be understated. So, and, and the social platforms give you like a lot of data. So you'll feel comforted by that, at least when you make decisions to apply it when it's a little bit more black boxed, which is why I like the, the focus group to then move to the more high production stuff starts to make more sense when, when we think of it that way. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, don't don't get too uh, feel too safe with, with data. That's uh, for sure. Um, any any um, channels that you're seeing are are kind of overrated or things that you're thinking uh, you're thinking are are dying that folks should get away from. This might be counterintuitive to like literally what we were just talking about, but a lot of folks that I'm talking to is like when we're thinking about the YouTube plays and like Google display type of stuff, and I might even throw TV into there. It's like, if you can't afford brand awareness at this point, like don't jump in. It's just like, it's hard to make it profitable for you. It might be an attribution piece that you need to figure out, but even then, um, you just want to feel it on your overall revenue, but just like brand awareness, if you, if you can afford it, let's do it. Uh, but if not, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. Uh, last question. This is the efficient spend podcast. So what is the most efficient and inefficient uh, money that you spent on media? I think it happened in the same weekend, like black Friday, cyber Monday times working with e-commerce brands. The most efficient money I've ever spent is like, I'd say pre iOS 14, just letting that thing go. I should have spent more money realistically, but like, those are the good times people were profitable and like, like make it happen. 
inefficient Black Friday, Cyber Monday, post iOS 14, just not really knowing what to do, in all honesty. We had specific targets with specific budgets, and I was committed to spend the budget because I wanted to get to the revenue targets. But it's like you didn't have the data to make the best decisions possible, and we were still figuring out what ways we could analyze um, like overall performance across the board look like. So it's funny. I think like all Black Friday, Cyber Monday at two different two different years led to the most efficient and the most inefficient is what I'd say. The yeah, but my takeaway is um, sometimes uh, giving telling marketers you must spend X is not going to result in the best performance. Um, so yeah, cool, Evan. Thank you so much. This was great, man. Awesome. Paul, I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you having me. Enjoy your travels. Appreciate you dropping some breaking news on this one too. So I'm going to look out for that myself. Um, And folks who tuned in, really appreciate your ears today.